Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on the show Buyback Capital to talk about Fair Isaac Corporation, otherwise known as FICO, probably a name a lot of people are familiar with. Um, As far as our guest goes, uh, I'm a big fan of Buyback Capital. Uh, I've been following him on Twitter for a long time. I think we have very similar investment um, ideologies and, and philosophies. And I think, uh, his, his knowledge and his depth as an investor kind of will, will shine through in this, in this episode as he kind of digs through FICO. But anyways, before we get to the interview, I want to talk about our presenting sponsor, which is Stratosphere. Stratosphere is our investing home screen for fundamental research. You guys see us, uh, our, our listeners see us, um, using Stratosphere all the time. And we, we genuinely use it as our, daily dashboard. It lets you easily track all your investments, um, track any stocks you're researching. It's got this nifty news feed. It's got SEC file aggregation tool, a number of... I I find new tools every day. There's a fundamental charting tool. And then perhaps my favorite, they've got tons of company-specific data where you really can't get anywhere else, at least not in one seamless place. Um, There's plenty more. Stratosphere is uh, it's free. Go ahead, check it out. Stratosphere.io. That is Stratosphere.io. And if you want to use any of their paid plans, use promo code CCM and you get fifteen percent off. Um, And if you're if you're more interested in the Stratosphere platform, go ahead and stick around after the episode. There's a three minute interview we did with Stratosphere's founder Braden Dennis. But without further ado, let's get to the interview with Buyback Capital. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by Buyback Capital. It's his first time on the show, hopefully not the last. Uh, we met through Twitter um, through a recommendation of a previous guest, Philip Martinelli. I think Martinelli. Um, he said, we got to get Buyback Capital on the show. And so I reached out and uh, we're, we're happily joined by him today. And we're talking about FICO. Um so kind of, I guess maybe before we talk about what FICO is, how did you like stumble across this as an investment? Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. It's uh, awesome. Um, yeah, look, I came across the company, um, I've known about it for a long time. When I was in law school, I probably the only class I remember um, really <laughs> being engaged in was consumer law. Uh, this was a, um, uh, there are different regimes in the Western world, but one of the most striking things about consumer law is the um, focus on various interest rates that can be charged on uh, short-term money, auto loans, et cetera. These are things that are fairly well-regulated. Um, and I was struck by the fact that uh, in the United States, unlike other places in the Western world, um, there's a fairly uniform and strict regime about credit ratings. Um, and so you hear about the FICO score, you hear about it in, movie, in movies, um, banks refer to it subprime auto lenders refer to it. So it was a bit of a cognitive referent for me to begin with. Um, in the summer of 2021, so the end of 2021 in Australia, 
um, there was a fairly large drawdown in the shares of the company. Um, and at the time, this was being driven by, you know, question marks around their software business and um, potential new competition from the likes of Upstart. Um, when you dig kind of, you know, even on a very cursory look of the financials, you can tell that this is um, a, a fantastic uh, company. It's not, usually you need to dig a little bit deeper to get, you know, that kind of insight. This is something where you can basically just pull up the income statement and you're, um, you know, kind of lost for words. So it was a company that was trading at a, you know, kind of high teens, forward multiple, um, you know, kind of ticked all the boxes. It looked attractive compared to the 10-year. I think if you remember at the time, the 10-year was about 1.6%, something like that. Uh, you know, very strong earnings growth, long-lived franchise, that kind of thing. So it was a drawdown in the general market. Um, a guy that I follow, uh, Deb Cantaseria, it's his largest position. So it was kind of a, an alignment of the stars, if you will. Right. And it's a term I imagine a lot of people are familiar with, but it can you maybe go into like how they actually make money? Because that doesn't seem that's maybe not super intuitive. So like who are their actual customers? And then um uh I know they have two elements to their business. So can you talk about the 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 non-scores as well? Yeah, sure. So the um like just like you say in terms of revenue, they really have um and this used to be different. And we might talk about their you know other businesses that they pursued over the years, but in terms of actual um you know incremental operating income that contributes significantly to the company. They uh, run a scores business, just like you've, like you've said. This is primarily broken down into B2B and B2C. Primarily, they distribute the score. So we talk about the score. The score is an algorithm that's run on top of credit bureau data. So you've got the three big credit bureaus. They own the data. The FICO score is run, is an algorithm that's run on top of the data that comes out of the bureaus. Um, and so the primary, the, the Primarily, the B two B customer base are the credit bureaus, um, and to a you know a lesser extent, you know lending institutions, um, and what have you. So, fairly consolidated base of customers. Um, every time a pull is made, so they pull a score, uh, FICO will charge the credit bureaus or the financial institution um, a fee for doing so. And typically, in most circumstances, that fee for running the score will be passed along to the lender um, during the whole lending process. So if you ever bought a house or you bought a car or something like that, you'll know that there are closing costs. Some minute portion of that, depending on what you purchased, is your FICO score that's been you know, fed down the value chain. Uh, on the B2C side, FICO also makes your individual FICO score available to you um, through a platform called uh, MyFICO. And so any individual consumer can you know, open an account with them and check their FICO score. Um, and that's quite good for many, many, and that's, you know, a relatively new innovation for them. This is a company that's been around since the mid six, uh, mid fifties. Um, and the, you know, my FICO, uh, my FICO, um, platform or the ability to check your own credit score, um, has only, has been around for less than 20 years, I believe. Um, so that's 25% of the scores revenue on the software side. Um, they did divest um, a business there. Primarily what they do is they have a platform called Decision Management. Um, and, you know, it's in the middle of a transition to the cloud. So, you know, as probably most people will be aware, you know, last 15 years, uh, many software companies have been moving from a license model to a software as a service model. And there's all kinds of uh, good stuff and, you know, uh, difficulty in the, you know, re reporting the financial reports So that traditional accounting doesn't deal with it so well. 
but the essence of the decision management platform is that it services, you know, the 200 largest financial institutions, and it's a it's a money saver. So that's really it's um, it, it's you know a, a platform that a company can use to analyze their own data when they're making you know credit decisions. The the company you know alludes to the fact that this software could be used for you know many other use cases in many other industries, and we're kind of very early days there. And uh, so the money they make on the software side is, you know, part of that is traditional licenses. There's people who are using versions of the platform that are, you know, decade plus old. And then there are new signups that are, you know, going straight onto the SaaS model. And then there's a big swathe in between of people who they will eventually, you know, renegotiate to, you know, SaaS monthly fees um, for, for doing so. All right. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the software company in more detail later as it's getting to be a larger portion of this business. Uh, and you mentioned a bit of the history, but I want to talk about just for context for the listeners, how did they end up becoming, and I wrote monopoly provider here, but I think they, they're they probably the duopoly provider. You mentioned they have one big competitor. What is any relevant history to kind of get people up to speed on how they got to where they were, say, 50 years ago to where they are today? Yeah, awesome question. The, um, the the history is not so different than the, the history of sort of Moody's and S and P in the um, uh, you know in the credit rating world. We're talking more about the consumer credit rating world. So you know, famously, the company was started in 1956 by um, uh, uh, Bill Fair and Earl Isaac. I believe the names. They both you know invested four hundred dollars uh, into the business, and that's pretty good. Um, pretty good return for them. Um, uh, you know, the early days were a very hard slog. So basically, you know, two years after the company was created, they came up with this idea of a credit score. The philosophy of the company, you know, is not dissimilar from the philosophy of like almost every fintech today, which is we're going to, you know, digest data to make uh, financial and credit decisions more efficient and rational. And so that was the initial rationale, you know, 70 odd years ago. Two years into the company, they came up with the score. They took the score to 15 financial institutions and kind of had a very slow um, slow progression from then. The original traction for the idea is that it was actually quite innovative. The, um, the score was um, a way to you know, judge creditworthiness of an individual borrower um, in a way that was much more efficient than had been done before because uh, a normal human lender will have all kinds of uh, biases and um, uh, you know, even bringing a tiny bit of of, uh, of data analytics to your decision making can be quite a big delta. Really, what got them to the unusual market position that they are in in today um, is the advent of securitization. So, you know, in the last seventy years or so, there's been this huge move away from um, the inst- the financial institution that originates the loan. In the old days, would hold on to the loan. Now, today, that's actually very uncommon. Most people who originate loans will resell loans to investors. And so this creates an odd nexus. Um, it creates three parties uh, to a transaction. So you've got the borrower, the lender, and the investor who will eventually buy the um, uh, the loan from the lender. And so when you have this kind of multivariate um, scheme, you need a standard to coalesce around. You need a kind of shorthand way to assess uh, the riskiness of any loan. And so investors who are purchasing these loans, they need a way to you know assess their riskiness quickly. They can, you know these huge portfolios. It's not they can't really go down the line and you know analyze every single securitized loan within you know a particular mortgage backed security or a 
you know, a loan back security product. So that's, you know, kind of the gist. If there were a big breakthrough, you know, it, most people point to 1995 when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, took the FICO score um, as a way to determine who would and who would not qualify for a Fannie and Freddie um, guaranteed loan. And obviously the, you know, the US 30-year mortgage regime is completely supported by that. So that's kind of the, um, that's another onus where, you know, these the government and a quasi-government institution came to the party. They also needed a way to make sense of, you know, this vast market with all these loans being made. And so you have this very odd circumstance in the wake of 2008. So obviously um, uh, a lot of um, mismanagement and misallocation of resources went on before this. The government once again sort of stepped in and needed a way to um, rationalise markets. So in the last, uh, in the period since the GFC, the, FA, the FHFA, so the, um, the agency that regulates uh, mortgages in the United States, they basically mandated a uh, FICO score for, um, uh, first of all, securitization of mortgage products, but also, you know, um, those mortgages that would qualify for a 30-year. So part government, part historical kind of um, uh, accident, if you will. Well, who, I, I guess, who are their competitors? Because I know in the last two years, uh, and kind of with the, the rise of Upstart, it made it seem like FICO was maybe dying when that doesn't seem to be what's played out. So like, are there some true competitive threats kind of on the horizon? And then um, who would they be? Right. Yeah. So the, um, um, I, I tweeted a little bit about this, but I think uh, calling Upstart a competitor um, is, is perhaps missequencing markets just a little bit. Um, Upstart is a very large FICO customer. So one of the things that um, FICO mentions is that um, you know, this move away from or what people interpret to be a move away from purely using the FICO score is not uh, detrimental to the company. Just because a lending institution wants to implement many inputs into their credit decisioning doesn't really mean that the FICO score is under threat. So um, Upstart, phenom phenomenal company, they, they have a philosophical difference with the FICO score, which I think um, is sort of playing out. You can see it in their reported numbers now. Um, where uh, th their idea philosophically was that we're going to find the diamond in the rough. So we're going to find the guy with the 600 FICO score who should be 800. And, you know, we're going to make money because he's, you know, we'll be able to lend money to him and, and he can actually repay better. The FICO model, this philosophical model is to try and, um, you know, uh, cut out bad risks. So they're, they're more on the side of, um, you know, harshly grading people. So some people who, who may actually be you know, 100 points, whatever it is, greater than they are, they may be harshly graded, but the kind of outcome is that that's a more sustainable model over time. So that's kind of like a, a heuristic um, that they operate by. Um, in terms of competitors, exactly right. So um, in the positioning that we talked about before, the main customer for FICO is the credit bureaus, so the three large credit bureaus. And naturally, there's a tension um, between those uh, two guys because uh, the credit bureaus, in some sense, you know, they are an oligopoly, but they also do, you know, they are charging closing fees on top of a loan. 
And so there's a little bit of competition there about how cost effective they can be compared to their competitors, even though they do they do raise prices um, over the years. So there's a natural um, tension there because they are effectively on passing the, the FICO score cost to the customer. Um, so they banded together a few years ago and they created what's called Vantage Score. Um, Vantage Score, once again, is, you know, the public propaganda, if you will, is that it's a lot more inclusive than the FICO score. Um, and, you know, it opens up, uh, you know, lending to, to more people. Really what the credit bureaus were trying to do, two things, they wanted to be able to lend to more people. So where the FICO score might be harsher, it would stop them from lending out, you know, as, as much as they might like to. So they would be able to circumvent the FICO score and, you know, lend to their heart, you know, issue, um, you know, more loans or, or, or be the, uh, uh, be the catalyst for more loans, if you will, and then also to save their costs. So they could, you know, instead of paying $10, $7, $3, whatever the score pool might cost, um, you know, they could just have it in-house with their own little score. Um, that's actually turned out to be a kind of disastrous strategy for them. Um, there was a recent FHFA decision around mortgage, um, which essentially, um, you know, created this duopoly status now. So in the past, the bureaus only had to pull a FICO score um, for a mortgage, and now they have to pull a Vantage score and a FICO score. So they've kind of doubled up, and they used to be called tri-merge. So you'd go to all three credit bureaus, and they would all, all run one FICO score, and then you'd have a conforming mortgage. Now you only need two of the credit bureaus, and you need two scores. So they've introduced competition for themselves. So, you know, one third of the credit bureau is going to be cut out of, of every decision. And uh, they are now mandated to pull a FICO score as well. So it's kind of like maybe five years of, you know, uh, unlimited pricing power there where the, the, the FICO guys can really um, push. The, the other competitive threat is really um, a bit of a trend. It's not a huge trend, but this has popped up a little bit where uh, uh, some lending institutions have moved away from the score and have been able to securitize without it. So this is probably a handful of banks, usually regional, not large, um, and they usually make a big song and dance about leaving the FICO score, but you never really hear about if they're using it again. So it's a bit unclear how that is. In the vast majority of cases, to be able to sell securitized loans, it does um, need, a, need a FICO score. So that's something else you'd really need to keep your eye on um, over the years. And, and the other thing that I would say about that is that um, FICO is continually upgrading the algorithm. So they're onto version, I can't even remember, it's something like 15. Um, so they have different iterations of the score over time and they're opening it up and they're, and they're doing certain things. So they were one of the first people to not take um, race or gender into, into decisioning of credit. And um, you know, that was, I think, 40 years ago. So um, they're innovative, they keep, they keep updating it, but um, yeah, there's a few, there's a few hair, you know, there's hair on this. And you, you mentioned, I think, I don't want to call it regulatory capture, but maybe a regulatory competitive advantage. Is that why they are so difficult to displace? And do you believe they have any other competitive advantages? Because kind of personally, I, I think the FICO score, while you may not think about this at first, you know, glance, it kind of has a pretty good brand. Uh, I don't know. Do you agree or disagree with that? Um, it, it does have, you're 100% right. So it has this cognitive referent thing. Yeah. 
where it shows up in movies. So if you watch the big short, you know, they're talking about, you know, FICO scores 650, da 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 da. So it, it shows up time and time again. It shows up in uh, un, unrelated earning reports. So you'll hear, you know, large banking institutions, which aren't technically customers, they'll talk about the score. You have this kind of cultural pervasiveness, um, which is, um, it's a very positive thing for the company because it means most people will identify with it. So on the customer's side, they identify with, you know, when they think about their credit score, they're thinking about the FICO score. It's going to be very difficult for, you know, the, the public consciousness to think about Vantage score. When I think about Vantage score, I think about like, it sounds scammy to me. I don't know. It, I, it's new. I don't understand it. You know, why is it even here? Very hard to kind of have that, um, you know, uh, mind share, as Buffer would say. Um, you're 100% right on the regulatory capture thing. So in the mortgage segment, which is a, a very important segment for the company, they do have regulatory capture. They are mandated by the government. It's a, man, a government mandated uh, duopoly now. So that's obviously a very strong part to the thesis. Um, some things which are less well understood generally is um, a lot of these uh, financial institutions, they run off very old coded software called Cobalt. So guys might be familiar with this. This was a um, uh, popular programming language in the 60s, 70s, kind of, when a lot of these uh, financial institutions were, um, you know, building out their computer infrastructure. FICO is kind of built into this. So, you know, I, I've heard computer program computer programmers say, like, the number of people who can really um, competently code in Cobalt now, you can kind of, like, count them on one hand or something like that. So the ability for these uh, banking institutions to change their internal infrastructure would, you know, the pain point would just have to be so high um, for them to, to really do anything about this. So there's a way where they're kind of woven into the financial fabric um, of society as well. And, you know, finally, I would just say it's a good product. Their, um, their, the, the philosophy we talked about is a long-lived philosophy. So if the FICO score has been around, you know, almost 70 years, there's a reason for that. And the reason for it is, is that it, it's a risk-averse approach. So the upstarts of the world and whatever, I, I'm fairly confident, um, if not already, but these guys will find themselves in very uh, hot financial water, um, if, you know, in a, in a very adverse credit regime. And they're already starting to see it. And I mean, you know, what do we have, like eight rate hikes or something? But I understand that it's the worst bear market in rates ever, but a lot of these people have built no margin of safety into uh, their, their lending practices. And in an 08, I mean, they've, they've finished the toast. So the, the fact that the FICO score has been able to thrive and survive, part of that reason is not just regulatory capture, it's that it actually is, um, you know, rating credit scores in, a, in an efficient, you know, margin of safety type way. You may have already mentioned this, so I apologize if I'm asking it twice, but why is uh, the FICO score mandated on the mortgage side? Like what what was the incentive from the governments to make that a, a part of the uh, whatever mortgage application process? Yeah, right. So the, um, uh, and I might have the historical facts a little bit wrong on this, but the, the broad general narrative is that it's really in the government's interest to have an orderly um, uh, have an orderly mortgage market. So, uh, you know, going back to first principles, the 30-year mortgage regime is like um, 
if you don't live in America, someone tells you that you can get a 30-year fixed mortgage, it's like, you know, your mind kind of explodes. You're like, how is that even possible? Um, and it, it's possible because it's a government-sponsored program, right? You have the the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, guaranteeing these loans, you know, insurance on these lines um, and there's a whole infrastructure built up there to support this regime and it's it's a fantastic deal for the american citizen you know like um, you can buy a house you can lock in a you know an attractive rate for a long time if you want to refinance when rates go lower that's very easy if rates go up you've still got a great rate you know and it's this way to have a very long-lived tax basis you know cheap housing you know the, the whole thing so it's it, i'm generally very supportive of it um but the, the the government does need a way to kind of make sense of this market and make sense of it in a very rational way. And so if you had 35 different standards by which people were issuing loans and, and this kind of thing, it's um uh, it would be very chaotic and it would probably be impossible for this regime to exist. If there were very large portions of the market that were non-performing, um, you know, it would it would be kind of a societal disaster, like what we saw in 2008. So I think the government recognised the score is quite a good way, a risk-averse way to do this. It's a way for um, everyone to be on the same page. If you can, if everyone knows how they can build their credit, right? If you've got all these different scores and they're all got a different way that you know, a different path to building your own credit, how are you supposed to make a decision about that? So it's kind of the the investors, the lenders, the borrowers like it for the most part, and the government sees it as a way to rationalise. Um, and the government sees it as a way to rationalise the market. The new trend that we're seeing, you know, probably since the advent of Obama and, um, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the woke crowd kind of um, getting more involved and millennials becoming a bigger part of the consuming public is that uh, you have this greater push for inclusion. So the um, the the traditional um, the criticism of the FICO score is that, um it, it doesn't include enough people. So um, typically you see certain demographics. So for instance, you know, the black community, certain other minority communities um, appear to be pe penalized uh, quite difficult, uh, you know, in that they're penalized quite harshly by the FICO score. Um, I don't think that's a racist thing. I just think, um, you know, that some communities are disadvantaged and the scores will interpret the data that way. So that's kind of like a forward-looking thing that scores probably need to become more inclusive to keep up with societal trends. Um, um, but but yeah, it's it's a good product, a risk-averse product and worked for a long time. No, it's a great overview. And let's go to the second part of the business, which is software. Uh, I, I just generalized this as their new business lines, but how has this gone? How many years have they been at this? And what potential do you see with the stuff that is the non-credit score area of the business? Right. Yeah. Um, so when I, full disclosure, when I first bought the business, I was not very focused on software. Um, you know, one of the, the uh, general uh, characteristics of a wonderful business is that eventually the CEO can't sit still. He's got this thing which is just generating like, you know, ungodly amounts of profits. And uh, eventually they get bored and they think, you know, we should be doing something else here. I've been such a genius with this government mandated monopoly. Surely I can take this into a different business line and be just as successful. That is typically not the case. Um, and that's something that's played out with Moody's as well. So there's been different iterations of this software over the years. Like I mentioned, uh, they had the original license scores, which some, uh, sorry, the uh, original license product, um, 
which has been around for uh, many years, and there are people using quite old versions of this, which they cannot transfer to the new decision management cloud, which is what they call it. Um, the essence of the business, like I mentioned before, is really that it's a it's it's a way for companies to make sense of their data. So it's obviously a you know general trend um, in uh, cloud computing towards this. So the likes of Snowflake, you know, being able to take all your data lakes and you know, the terabytes and terabytes of data that you've got and visualize it, make sense of it, um, get gain insights from it. And that's really um, uh, what the decision management cloud is uh, all about. So the main customer base, like I mentioned before, it's about the 200 largest financial institutions. Um, and um, from all reports from the company, you know, they mentioned this in the last earnings call that, um, you know, the software kind of pays for itself in less than a year. And it's paying for itself because more efficient decision making um, is able to be made. I'm not going to profess to know um, all the nitty gritty uh, details on it because I simply don't know. I've never used the software before. I probably need a few hundred mil to uh, to get a copy. Um, uh, but the financial performance has been um, fantastic. Uh, so if you go over the last, if you have a look at the share price over the last year or so, it's done really well in part because the company has been able to grow. Um, their bookings, revenue, and margins, the operating margins, uh, very nicely in an environment where other technology companies have had their costs sort of blown out um, as they've tried to, you know, keep up with um, their revenue numbers and whatnot. So, you know, from from looking at the financials, it looks really good. I mean, this is a company which is in an odd um, happenstance where. You look at the scores business and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And when you compare the the software business to the scores business, you're like, you know, what's this pathetic thing that they're, they're doing on the side? But it's got 30% operating margins. If it was a standalone company, you'd be kind of blown away by it itself. Um, but yeah, their ability to manage the costs on it is um, breathtaking. Yeah, they've, they've done a very good, very good job of managing it. Um, they, they did have a divestiture of uh, one of their less promising business lines uh, in the end of 2021 into 2022, an, another software business. So they are very realistic in their investments. If they don't see returns on it, they're, they're willing to kind of um, spin those out, divest them, shut them down. Um, and they've done that with other business lines as well. Um, you know, an infamous example is they used to have a collections business. Uh, anyone who knows anything about debt collection will know that that is a really tough business um, and it's really got to be the sole focus of what you're doing. It's kind of like the reverse opposite of issuing scores. Um, and, you know, that they've, they've shut that down. They used to do consulting professional services. That's low margin. Anyone who knows in software knows that if you're selling training, that's people intensive, time intensive. You're trying to do the least amount of training. The customer's trying to get the most amount of training out of you. Um, and so that you know that they, they they've stopped that as well. So it's very promising. The consensus um, amongst people I respect um, is that the the growth story will probably be a five to ten year um, kind of time frame. And because it does have this cost saving element, there's probably tremendous pricing power in there um, as loan volumes you know trend up over time. They'll be able to uh, raise their prices because the the value between um, you know, the money they're saving and the money they're charging will kind of grow. So very promising. It was an option. It seems to have worked out. Yeah, it seems like there's some uncertainty there, but lots of upside if they continue to execute. You talked about the competitive advantages, and it's pretty clear that they have pricing power over at the scores segment. Um, and 
it's likely because like you talked about, it's a small piece of the overall pie of the, the whole, the whole credit score and loan supply chain. I think the big question though, is how much can they raise prices? So I guess maybe some context, I don't know if you don't have the exact numbers, but how often do they raise prices and what do you think they could reasonably take prices to this decade without losing customers? Is it inflation rate? Is it inflation like double the inflation rate? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, great. Um, so the dynamics of uh, the of um, pricing, uh, for many decades, they actually did not raise the price on the scores at all. So up until about 2018, um, they were not raising prices. So we're in year you know five or six of this. Um, and, you know, if the price hadn't been raised for 30 years, there's a tremendous amount of economic uh, goodwill there. To put the scores into perspective, um, so this, um, they, have, um, they have CPI plus special pricing. So obviously the, the CPI, I think it's calculated in like September, October every year. So that year gets carried forward for the next year, gets calculated um, the year after that and so on. And they also have special pricing. Now, they are very cagey about um, how they are raising prices. So I, I think for probably since they started the normal, the what they call the special pricing um, regime in 2018, it was probably quite discretionary and there was a lot of um, uh, experimentation going on. You know, what can we push in auto? What can we push in mortgage? What can we push in consumer? Da, 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 da. So, and um, Will Lansing, the CEO, you know, He's brought a lot of science to that whole um, process. And so the special pricing is kind of calculated at the same time. And it seems that they are migrating most of their clients over to a um, tiered structure. So they'll kind of have the people doing the most amount of volume. They'll kind of have, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20%, depending on what the deal is. Um, they'll be in that range. And then as you get to the second and third tier, um, when you get to the second and third tier financial institutions, like the numbers are crazy. It's like 100 to 400% they're going to raise in the next year. I think over, you know, the historical period where they had the special pricing increases, uh, you know, the special price increases have probably been something like 15%, if not higher. Um, to, and this is a little bit different depending on the exact um, loan that they're making. So, the, the place where they definitely have the most pricing power and potentially maybe unlimited is mortgage because you will not be able to get a mortgage without the score. To put that into perspective, let's take a half a million dollar loan, which I think is pretty reasonable. Um, that loan would have about $3,000 worth of closing costs. So that's you know insurance, credit bureau, blah, blah, blah. Maybe there's some local taxes thrown in there. So there's $3,000 worth of um, closing costs. The FICA, uh, the, the credit bureau's percent uh, portion of that is about $92 at the moment. So normal mortgage, 92 bucks on 3,000 on a mortgage of half a million. The FICO score, depending on the information that you get, um, if you just take the number of scores they run in a year and you divide it by the score's revenue, it looks like $13, which is quite high than what the company has actually reported. Um, the company in, in earnings reports has said that the average mortgage uh, score pool is something like $7. Uh, it can be something as low as like, you know, 50 cents for a, a personal loan. So let's say something like 7 to $13 
on 92 for the Bureau, on 3,000 of closing costs on half a million dollar mortgage. Um, you know, where does that become cost prohibitive? Your guess is really as good as mine. My general feeling is that could be many orders of magnitude higher. Yeah, Maybe there's no reason. Four, five X, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yes. there's no reason that anyone would give it up or <laughs> stop getting a mortgage if it was $50, if that closing cost went from 3000 to 3050 It's a great point. And yeah. I wanted to make sure we added on here because we, we talked before about uh, hitting this point in case you forgot. And it is the potential inflection and in volumes uh, for mortgages over the next few years is part of the thesis on FICO that we're in a slowdown in the mortgage market right now? Or how, how does that relate to their business? Because I know the volume, you know, if it decreases, their volume is going to decrease. Ryan, give some to add there as well. Yeah, I would just maybe tailor that into the valuation discussion, which is like, is that, are they under earning right now? Uh, and then maybe could you give some context around valuation for the listeners? Yeah, no problems. So um, going back to the, the first question, um, okay, so um, uh, really one of the largest macro themes that's been playing out over the last kind of, you know, since the beginning of uh, rates going up at the end of 2021 has been this massively precipitous drop in mortgage volumes. And most people will be aware of this, you know, the typical 30-year mortgage has gone from like 1%, 2% to 8% which is an enormous delta in uh, you know, a, a typical borrower's ability to, to service a mortgage. And you've seen incredible declines. So the company's really been reporting you know, 40, 50% declines in, in mortgage volumes. And mortgages really, um, it's, a, it's probably the most important part of, um, uh, of their school's business because you know, it's a regulated monopoly. This is a huge market. People are buying houses every year. And there's always been a trend towards, you know, very high levels of ownership in the West. So um, we're in a massive trough. And for the company's perspective, those huge declines in a very core portion of the scores has been made up um, primarily in, in credit cards, so consumer loans, and, and a pretty healthy um, auto market, um, irrespective of a similar dynamic playing out there. So um, really what we're seeing is a normalization of the, uh, of the mortgage market. And eventually, this is going to, you know, uh, these volumes will uh, normalize. If rates come down, it's going to be, you know, an even better boon for the company. The other place where you see this um, general dynamic playing out is in their B2C business. So naturally, when you're not able to get a mortgage or service a mortgage to buy the house you want, you're probably not that interested in your FICO score. So you're not you're not on there, you know, checking your FICO score every three days, whatever it is. So. Um, you know that that's kind of affected it as well. There will be a normalization period, and there will be a you know a trend to normal eventually. Especially if you assume that the um, credit markets you know kind of normalize in the next couple of years, and uh, that will kind of be a um, a catalyst in two ways. Obviously, the increased volumes that's just all incremental. It really doesn't take much capital at all to produce a score. And secondly, it will probably be a um, a catalyst for the CEO to go to his salespeople to much more aggressively push the um, the price hikes. And the, the other kind of icing on the cake there is it appears that the bureaus are kind of coming to the party. They're going to be, you know, pushing their prices as well. So this will be kind of like an ind industry accepted um, uh, trend and, um, you know, probably everyone will do quite, 
quite well out of it. So that's you know some, a silver lining on the um, on on the horizon. What I've mentioned before is that really the precipitous decline in mortgage volumes has not really affected their financial performance very much, simply because the company has so much pricing power. So on the valuation point, um, uh, Will Lansing, the CEO, he you know has come out in some earnings reports when analysts have questioned guidance. And he's more or less said, you know, the company has such tremendous pricing power that you can pretty much uh, rely on our guidance because, you know, this is a company that kind of can make its own income statement up. If, if, they, if they, you know, they could, they're, they're pretty good at forecasting what volumes are going to be because you can correlate them to where interest rates are. And so they can say, oh, you know, mortgage is at eight. We reckon that's going to have, you know, X so much um, uh, impact on volumes. We're going to raise prices like 30% this year or something like that. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's a scenario that can play out, and especially in this environment where you've got high CPI numbers as well. You have to remember that's being added on. So last year, they probably had pricing seven or eight, 20, you know, on, on the average. And so that can make up for a lot of volume declines. And you have to remember that these pricing escalators, they're staying there. So when volume comes back, you know, the, these higher prices are going to apply to even more volumes. So, you know, the, the business risk and their ability to manage, you know, their earnings and cash flows is very high. And that's why you see a very high valuation for the company, at least now. So if you look at a stock chart, I didn't see what it closed at today, but it's something like, you know, 45 times last 12-month earnings. And that's a price that is reflecting a, a kind of, um, you know, their, their ability to manage uh, their numbers despite what would otherwise be quite adverse circumstances. It's reflecting, you know, an inflection point in the software and, you know, its ability to add incrementally to the uh, to operating income and cash flows. Um, and, you know, there's probably a forward-looking element in there where they're seeing, you know, the market is kind of discounting a more normalised lending environment um, and the fact that the competitive threats are not, uh, they didn't materialize as many investors would have thought they would. Um, so it's a very, very high price. I'm, I'm certainly not buying um, the shares back. The company themselves have continued to use their free cash flow, pretty much all of it, to repurchase shares. Um, last year, so 2020 and the year before that, 2021, they borrowed a lot of money to retire shares. Um, because they thought that the share price was very low um, compared to what its future position would be. And that would be a point I would generally agree with. Um, I think they've probably done the right thing uh, to not borrow any more money to repurchase shares at, at these at these levels. It, yeah, that was a great job uh, answering kind of a hodgepodge of four different questions we threw at you. But the uh, <laughs> um, I guess then this question might be kind of difficult to answer, but is there any point when like, I hear about those price hikes and I know it's still like if that $13 or, or whatever the do, uh, the price was on a $500,000 loan, I know that's low, but is there ever a point when like the price hikes kind of hit a wall where customers are just looking to get away from this and it kind of either invites competition or invites, invites pushback from customers? Could you see that of uh, kind of coming up at all? Yeah, I'm. I'm not so sure about the customers really being uh, the the adverse party here. When you go and get a mortgage, 
you have the borrower, you have the amount that you'd like to borrow. The house that you're buying is probably not an economic decision in the in the vast majority of cases. You know, you've got a family, your wife likes the house, the kids like it, you're buying it. Um, you know, that that kind of dynamic is playing out. When they get their, their closing cost bill, it doesn't say you've got $13 from FICO. It says, you know, you've got $3,000 from your mortgage broker or, you know, whatever it is. So customers are probably not naive, but just generally, you know, the association of FICO and the the um, the um, the increase in what their clo- closing costs might be, you know, not quite apparent to them. This is also, you know, fairly irregular decision. You know, you know, you buy a house once every, well, some people buy one house in their life, um, and you know, you buy a car every five, six years, something like that. So, really, the customer's sensitivity to this is, um, it, it, you, you're 100 right. There is some price somewhere where it does become the closing costs. Um, would become a little bit prohibitive. Um, but you, in a sense, you are making this, this non-economic decision. The place, the risk for the company, in my opinion, would be uh, both regulatory um, and the uh, relationship with the bureaus. So if the government were to come in and, um, you know, pick another provider that they were going to exclusively accept, you know, conforming, Fannie and Freddie mortgages from that would be naturally a catastrophic outcome um, for the company in one of their reporting lines. And the other thing would be um, investors losing faith in the standard. So if a large number of in you know large institutions were willing to buy securitized loan products that did not have a FICO score, that would also be fairly catastrophic um, event for the company. And like they have made it through so many. Um, like, I, you know, probably, we, you know, chances are we don't see an outcome like 2008 again, where every institution on the lending food chain was acting poorly and all these standards came out stronger on the other side of it. You know, even that's kind of like mind blowing. So it's hard to envisage a scenario where a multitude of these parties um, to the standard lose faith in it and you know potentially move to a different standard or move away from standardization altogether i think it's it's unlikely it's not impossible but unlikely that kind of answers my last question which i wanted to end with which is the pre-mortem um is there aside from some sort of regulatory change is there any big risks you see here that could cause this to be a poor investment from here over the next say uh, however long your time horizon is. Hopefully it'll be forever. Hopefully they return more money to me every year. That would be ideal. But um, look, the main risks I really see for it, apart from the you know clear regulatory um, and you know just basic business positioning dynamic, um, would really be a move away from Will Lansing's uh, regime. So uh, Will Lansing came into the company as a CEO in 2012. He had a private equity background. He's a very level-headed individual. He has a very clear plan for value creation, and his strategy has been a very strong total stock return. You know, more volumes, more pricing, more share repurchases, and we'll leverage the balance sheet when it's appropriate to do so. And that has been a spectacular, you know, value accretive event for all the shareholders in the company. He has done a very good job in managing expenses. Um, so it's basically been, you know, very little change in the SGNA over the past four years, which, you know, 
you guys are an investor in some other technology companies and you know they have not they have had explosions in their cost basis this is a company that basically you know it, it doesn't own a lot of it doesn't have a lot of PPE. and e it it has one two million dollars in capex every year like you can't even see capex on the free cash flow statement it's a very well run efficient company the the risk in my mind is that uh uh mr lansing is um he's not a spring chicken so late 60s 70s i believe he's been at the company now for 11 years and um, my impression from some of the other executives at the company is that they are very flashy sales type people um, and a serious concern of mine would be that um, some moron takes over as CEO and decides to the, the usual maligned, um, you know, CEO path of M&A, new business lines, uh, you know, doesn't focus on the scores business, um, you know, tells the sales guys to, you know, get out on the road every week, all, all the kind of things that investors don't like. That would really be um, a very bad outcome for the company, especially at its current valuation. Um, and it would really damage, you know, the kind of total stock return thesis with the company. Um, that would really be, um, you know, a very big risk. The other risk is just clearly valuation. Um, uh, it's probably fair to say that the, the company is, very, is quite fully valued at the moment. People understand the, the bull case with the company is kind of being appreciated by the market. And um, you know, significant deteriorations in in other uh, scores sectors like you know, auto, personal loans, what have you, the things that are holding up um, the revenues and earnings at the moment. If there were a very large collapse in that, that could have you know serious multiple compression. You have to remember that during the GFC, this is a company that was trading on like nine, ten times EPS, which would be a, a very large re-rate, but um, probably not impossible. You know, given a very adverse um, circumstance but having said that um it's a company you have you can have a lot of faith in uh, where their numbers are going under current management want to add that um and so you know the business risk is quite low valuation is quite high but you know if they continue to kind of pump out 20 percent ish you know free cash flow growth require a bunch of shares uh that's a that's a recipe for a decent stockholder return all things being equal okay Last, last question. Would you, you mentioned the buyback program. Do you like that at these prices or would you rather see them just go invest into T-bills or something while it's elevated? I know it sounds like management has uh, plans to increase that E in the PE, but uh, is there any other way you'd like to see them allocate that capital? Uh, I'm generally very supportive of of what they of what they have been doing. So this is one of the few examples where you've seen what what I've seen what a management have done. And I thought, oh, this is great. And then, you know, usually management keeps doing what they're doing, which is, um, you know, that's where you can get frustrated because you want management to do something else, uh, despite the history. So I think their capital allocation policy is very rational. Um, it makes a lot of sense to reinvest capital in very high returning business lines, which is essentially what they're doing in the buyback. Um, program. The alternatives, yeah, like keeping it on the balance sheet or potentially doing a dividend. Um, I think just from a pragmatic standpoint, that is not, um, that's, in, uh, even though, you know, there might be a level where that's, you know, mathematically rational, you have to remember that people purchase these companies for certain reasons. And so if you, um, you know, purchase a company under the assumption that it's going to repurchase the shares, 
and then they pay a dividend instead. That will attract different kind of investors. And it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're holding a warehouse doof and a ballet recital at the same time. And that can cause a lot of chaos in the um, in, in the shareholder base, which I'm actually not very supportive of. People buy to this company because they know they're going to repurchase the shares and they have a high returning enough business lines to do that. Um, so very supportive, very supportive of them raising what is relatively low cost debt to repurchase shares at um, what they deem to be low prices. I think they have a very rational perspective of what the value of their business is. And if it continues on, you know, in some, you know, even a modest amount in, in relation to kind of its last five-year business performance, repurchasing the shares is not a silly thing to do. I think somebody asked the same question to Buffett about Coca-Cola you know, in 1999 or 98 when the shares were like 40, 50 times earnings. And I, I don't want to be you know, uh, immodest here, certainly not comparing myself to the great man in any respect. <laughs> uh, but but he, he said that that was not a stupid thing for the company to do if you think the franchise is going to be better 10, 20 years from now. And so uh, I kind of think uh, along the same lines here. Okay. Well, I think that's all the questions we have, unless Brett's got any others. I, uh, he's he shaking his head. So uh, that's going to do it. Where can people keep up with you? What's your Twitter handle? What's the, uh, what's the Substack called? Yeah, great. So uh, the name on, on Twitter is buyback capital, but, the uh, handle is at Larry Jamison underscore. Um, and the Substack is uh, buybackcapital.substack.com. You can find the link on my Twitter page as well. Perfect. We'll link to that. Um, that is going to do it though. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or a recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Buyback Capital, for coming on the show. And uh, we will see you all next time. Okay, I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in stratosphere more context around what the platform is so let's start there what is stratosphere and then why did you decide to start it yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it and i'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as as a listener myself i like the deep dives i like the different guests the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies so i think it's a good concept for a podcast which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side, up to 35 years we have now, and how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are on, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus Discovery plus no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And 
And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But- you can go through 35, uh, PDF filings and find it be, be my guest. And, and that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model. So people know, sure. but, uh, you're going to say it, it, there's, there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah. Good, good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And, and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years, filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the, the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in, um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Braden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brett are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.